You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Todd. Hey, I have uh, another great privilege this morning, and that is to introduce you uh, to one of my friends, uh, Jim Wilson. Jim and his wife, Melanie, they've been married for 38 years. He graduated from Dallas Seminary in 1986 and then went back and earned a doctor of ministry from Dallas in 2001. Jim is the founder and leader of a ministry called EBOC. Um, you might remember over the last uh, couple, last year, we have uh, begun a relationship with EBOC, and then this last spring, just a few weeks ago, we sent a team uh, to Nicaragua uh, to work with Jim. Uh, EBOC is uh, the uh, Bible Institutes of Central America, is what it is. And predominantly, what it does is it takes training, biblical and theological training, to pastors and lay leaders in Central America. And so we, in Central America, you have churches, you've got pastors, lay leaders, you've got men that are very passionate about God and very passionate about seeing men and women come to Christ as they lead their churches. But they have such little to no opportunity for formal biblical and theological training. And so Jim, uh, 18, 17, 18 years ago, felt burdened by the Lord to bridge that gap and to bridge that gap with churches just like ours who have really a, a, an abundance of resources to say, hey, listen, you partner, I'll set up a region, you come there, and over a six, seven-year period, we have an opportunity as a church to bring um, real, solid, foundational training uh, to men and women who would not have an opportunity to do it otherwise. And so Jim does that. And it's a great privilege this morning because Jim is in the States and is with us, and I asked him if he would uh, preach today. I asked him if he'd stand up here, and uh, you're going to like it because it'll be the earliest you ever got out of Bethel Bible Church, by the way. Jim said this as he's coming. I'll, I'll read you something that he wrote several years ago. Um, Jim, I guess this was about the time you guys were, were feeling God's call to, to the mission field. But he said this, following God is seldom easy. At times, he's hard to figure out, and at other times, he asks us to make difficult decisions. I've been teaching that we have a natural passion for comfort and predictability. The problem is, is that God often doesn't cooperate with that. Comfort and predictability are not the fields in which trust takes root and flourishes. Isn't that great? Jim, thank you for being here with us. It is a great privilege, and I... Uh, hand this over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Ross, and good morning, Bethel. It's uh, great to be here with you, and uh, I'm just absolutely thrilled about uh, the partnership uh, that we're forging together to bring health to the church in Latin America. Uh, churches that, uh, as, as Ross said, that are pastored by men with great hearts but uh, little training. And uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, that verse that says, <clears throat> so that we not be blown about by every wind of doctrine, 
when you don't have a theological anchor to give you something solid, uh, to, to really make your theological basis sound, uh, every wind of doctrine is blowing, by the way, and uh, without something uh, good and solid uh, churches in Latin America, there's a lot of them. Uh, it's just that very few of them are healthy. So uh, this is all about making the church of Jesus Christ healthy. And uh, <clears throat> it's a great, great joy for me to be with you today and uh, to get to speak <clears throat> in my own language. Yeah, um, it's been um, the last five years or so that uh, every time that I, I preach, I have to do it in my learned language of Spanish. ¿Cuántos aquí hablan español? Ah, sí, hay, hay algunos. Qué bueno. No voy a predicar en español, lo siento. Um, yeah, but it's, it's fun to be able to get to talk in, in my mother tongue. Uh, so as you can see, we're going to be talking today about show and tell. Show and tell is a game that we learn to play as kids, but we continue to play as adults. Right, grandparents? There's not a grandparent here that's not walking around with pictures of their grand. Let me show you. Let, let me tell you about my grandkid. It, it, it's a game that it never grows old. Now, in show and tell, the shower and the teller brings something unique, something impressive, something that uh, is unique to that person, something that's going to uh, make that person look good. Uh, the purpose of show and tell is also to learn something about the person who's showing and telling. So I want to begin this morning just by showing you and telling you a little bit about me. Um, Ross has already mentioned that uh, my wife, Melanie, and I have been married for 38 years. Uh, and if you're thinking, wow, how did such a pretty gal marry that? It's just grace. And uh, there's probably every husband in here needs to cop to that. How many husbands will be willing to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So 38 years we've been together. This is our uh, older daughter, Hope, and her husband, JD. They live in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, they are in the process of adopting uh, a baby right now. This is my younger daughter, Candace, and her husband, Mark. They live in Columbus, Mississippi, uh, where he is an Air Force pilot, so they're moving all over the place all the time. And these are my grandkids that I have to show you and tell you about. So this is my five-year-old grandson, Wilson, and this is Anna, who is three. And I get to go see them tomorrow. So I'm really looking forward to that. So that's a little bit about me. Let me show you and tell you something that we have in common, and that's the ministry of EBOC, which stands for Institutos Biblicos de America Central, or Bible Institutes of Latin America. So what we do is we have pastoral training centers that are spread throughout Central America at this point. Um, I'll show you something exciting here in, in just a moment. But right now we have 18 uh, locations where we have Bible training centers, where we train pastors and church leaders and bring them theological and biblical education in partnership with uh, churches in the U.S. Like, like Bethel. So thank you for being a part of what we're doing and bringing, um, bringing sound biblical doctrine and training to pastors uh, within this region. Uh, we've been invited uh, to Brazil as well, and I mean, that's great because we get to expand our influence and expand our footprint a bit. Uh, the only downside of that is I'll have to change the name of the ministry because we won't be just uh, 
Central America will be Ibaxac or something like that, South America. Uh, we have opportunities in uh, Honduras and another one in uh, Nicaragua, another one in San Jose, two more in uh, Panama. So God is continuing to give us the opportunity to expand uh, what we do. Uh, here's a picture of uh, an earlier trip when uh, Ross and Eric uh, came to Chinandega to explore uh, what we're doing. Uh, this is our team of Nicaraguan uh, site coordinators and translators. This is Cairo Farinas, who I've been working with since 1999. Melvin Losa, who was a student in our very first Bible Institute is now, and is now one of our translators and professors. And this is uh, Francisco Avendaño, but nobody knows him that way. We call him Chico. Um, and then this is Graham Hale, the pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville. So, and, and then the next picture is uh, a picture of our launch in March of this year, just last month, where your church uh, partnered uh, with EBOC to begin a Bible Institute on Ometepe Island. And you guys sent a team down there who did just a fantastic job of getting things launched uh, on the island. So you'll be working there over the next several years, and I want to issue an invitation to everyone to come along. The food's great, weather's good, and the people are wonderful, and the ministry opportunities are extensive. So we just want to uh, invite you to come along. So that's a little bit about me showing and telling my family and showing and telling the ministry. But my question this morning is this, as we think about show and tell. If you were God, what would you bring to show and tell? Something unique, something no one else could bring, something impressive, something that's going to show and tell something about you. If you were God, what would you bring to show and tell? I want to suggest that God would bring several things to show and tell this morning. And the first thing I think that God would bring to show and tell is creation. Because creation shows and tells about God. Now, there's one thing for certain. No one else is going to bring a universe to show and tell. Because no one else can make one. But God made the universe. And God can bring the whole universe. God can bring creation to show and tell and say, there, I did that. Um, but what does creation show and tell? about God? Well, I think creation shows and tells God's glory and God's power. I mean, when we look around at creation, we, we, we marvel at it, and we say, what a glorious God he is, what a powerful God he is, that he could make everything simply by speaking it into existence. I mean, that's what the Bible tells us. In Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 to 3, it says, the heavens declare, what is that? That's telling, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. They're telling us something. Night after night, they what? They display. They're showing us something. So show and tell. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Creation is showing and telling us about the glory of God. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 20, 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul says, folks, the evidence of creation is so clear that people cannot claim any kind of excuse that you didn't give me any evidence that you weren't there. And creation declares, shows and tells God's glory and God's power. I mean, think about it. Look at the universe, the heavens. I, I, I pastored for 12 years in Huntsville, Alabama, which is where NASA is. Now, NASA is a pretty cool organization. They got some smart guys there. They can explore the heavens and take pictures of the heavens, but God made the heavens. Now, it takes, wouldn't you agree, an incredible degree of intelligence to make that. What kind of supreme strength does it take to simply speak and cause all of that to happen? Creation shows and tells God's glory and God's power. He made the heavens. But he also made the mountains and the meadows. What an artist God is. I mean, it's just amazing what he can do with shapes and colors. God made that. He made the birds. What a great designer God is. He decks them out in splendid colors and gives them beautiful songs to sing. God made the mountains and the meadows. God made the birds. God made the lion, my favorite animal. Strong and majestic. The lion, king of the jungle. But God, the creator king, made the lion. Wouldn't you agree, if you were God, wouldn't you bring creation to show and tell and say, there, I did that. I wouldn't want to follow God in show and tell, but creation shows and tells God's glory and power. But what else might God bring to show and tell? I think God would also bring Israel to show and tell. Because Israel also shows and tells about God. After God created the heavens and the earth, he also made something else. He made a nation. And he did that by choosing one man. One pagan man living in a heathen land. One old man that God made a promise to, and God has kept that promise. God chose Abraham, and through this one man, God created the nation of Israel. Now, why were they chosen? Answer, pure grace. God has preserved the nation of Israel. They still exist today. And why have they been preserved and protected? Faithfulness. You see, I think Israel shows and tells God's grace and God's faithfulness. I mean, here's what we read in Deuteronomy Chapter 7, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. 
the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, folks, this passage is incredibly clear in telling us that God's choice of Israel was not because of anything great or good in Israel. It was a choice of love and grace. And what has preserved Israel through the centuries? Has Israel been preserved through the centuries because of Israel's great faithfulness to God? Well, if you've read the Old Testament, you know the answer to that is absolutely no. Israel has been preserved, protected, and sustained for one reason and one reason alone, and that is God's faithfulness to Israel. Creation shows and tells God's power and glory. Israel shows and tells God's grace and faithfulness. But what if God were to put us on display in show and tell? What if God said, I want to take all of you collectively and I want to put you on display as show and tell? What would you think about that? Wait a minute. Maybe he shouldn't do that. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and I want you to really think about this. As members of the body of Christ, we are the most wonderful phenomenon in the universe, the most amazing thing that God has ever done. Really. After seeing all those pictures of the heavens and the mountains and the meadows and the birds and the lions, the church is more amazing than that. Considering the formation and the sustaining of the nation of Israel, the church is more amazing than that. Now, at first blush, it may seem like this statement is an overstatement, but it's not. The book of Ephesians, and I invite you to find the book of Ephesians in your text this morning. We're going to look at some, some key passages in this book where Paul reminds us that the church is really something special. And Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that the church is God's show-and-tell masterpiece. The church is God's show-and-tell masterpiece. Because the church shows and tells God's wisdom in glory. The church shows and tells God's wisdom and glory. Now first, I want to show you and tell you that I'm not making that up. I want to show it to you and I want to tell you in the text that it's not something that I'm making up. It's what the Bible says. So once we get that settled, then I'm going to make my case. All right? So here's what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, and then we'll look at verses 20 and 21. 
Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Here's what Paul writes. His intent was that now through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> it's quite a statement that through the church, God, Paul says, is showing off in heavenly realms to the angels and to heavenly host through the church. And his manifold wisdom is put on display. Verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Verses 10 and 11, God's manifold wisdom is put on display. Verses 20 and 21, God's glory should be manifest within the church. Now, I want you to notice that verse 10 of chapter 3 says a little more than God's wisdom is seen in the heavens. What's it say? God's manifold, God's multifaceted wisdom is put on display in heavenly realms. God's wisdom in all of its rich variety is seen how? Verse 10 says, how? Through what? The church. Through the church. God's manifold wisdom is put on display. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I think of the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God sometimes makes my mind go tilt because his wisdom doesn't track like our wisdom. Give, give you some examples. Here's the wisdom of God. The way up is down. To keep what you have, you must give it away. You're going to find that wisdom in the world? To find your life, you must lose it. To lose your life means you find it. Unbridled freedom leads to slavery, but slavery to Jesus leads to freedom. Weakness brings strength. The first will be last, the last will be first. Man's cleverness is foolishness, but God's foolishness is wisdom. That's the wisdom of God. It, Seems inverted at times. It doesn't seem to make sense. But how many of you can testify by personal experience that every single thing on that list is the absolute truth? God's wisdom at times seems odd and strange, but God's wisdom for us is marvelous. And Ephesians tells us very clearly here that God's purpose, God's purpose for the church was that his manifold wisdom be displayed in the heavens to angels and angelic hosts. Get your mind around that. God shows off in the heavens with the church. Take a look at this. This is what I've done. And I'm sure when the angels consider creation, I mean, they marvel. 
When they look down at creation, they say, wow, what an awesome creator God we have. They worship God because he's the creator. And I'm sure when they look at Israel, they, they, they wonder the choice of Abraham, Isaac, not Jacob, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, how they defeated the Canaanites, how they conquered Pharaoh. They, they must marvel at what God has done, how God has been so faithful to Israel despite her unfaithfulness. But what Paul is saying to us in this passage is that, folks, angels, you haven't really seen the wisdom of God until you've seen the church. His manifold wisdom is put on display. And how is that? Well, I think we understand the wisdom of God when we see God solve two irreconcilable problems that we're, that we're confronted with here in the book of Ephesians. God's wisdom first is revealed in the miracle of salvation. The miracle of salvation. Now, one of the problems in salvation is bridging the enormous gap that exists between man's condition and God's character. What is man's condition? What's man's condition? It's not rhetorical. You can... Sinful, right? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, gives us a pretty good description of what our condition is. For you were once dead in your transgressions and sins, which you used to live in the when you followed the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. At the end of verse 3, it says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So our condition is that we're dead in sin and we're deserving God's wrath because we're sinful. We walked in transgressions. That's our reality. That's who we are. And what's God's character? Again, not rhetorical. Perfect. Holy. God is just, right? God is just. And what does justice demand to be done with sin? You got to judge it. How many of you get frustrated and something, something is triggered inside when you watch a television program or you pick up a newspaper or a magazine and you see someone who is obviously guilty who escapes punishment because of some technicality in the law or some slick lawyer who got them off and they got away. How, how many of you just, something goes off on the inside and you go, duh, or something like that? Anybody? What is that? What, what's going on inside? You know what that is? That's justice. Our sense of justice has not been carried out. And if we, as mere reflectors of God, have a sense of justice, imagine the one who is just. So God's justice demands that he punish sin, or he won't be just, right? But I want you to notice what verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 2 says. But God, because of his great love for us, so now we've got a problem. God's love wants to 
forgives sin, but his justice demands that he punish sin. So we're kind of on the horns of a dilemma here. What do we do? How does God solve this problem? Now, you guys are well taught. You're very biblically based. You're theologically astute. So you already know the answer, right? Jesus. Jesus is the answer. It's not a problem for God, but look how marvelous this is. The Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened? God's justice was satisfied. God poured out the punishment that we deserved. He poured it out on Jesus, so God's wrath and God's justice was satisfied. So, through what Christ did for us on the cross, God's forgiveness and love are released so that we can come into the, into the family. So God is not unjust. He didn't let us go. No, he poured out his punishment on Jesus. Isn't that great? Now, who could come up with a plan like that, folks? In 50,000 lifetimes, I couldn't think that up. But God, in his wisdom, in his love, said, salvation, it's a miracle. And God's wisdom is revealed and displayed in the miracle of salvation. But I think the church displays and shows and tells God's wisdom and glory another way, with another irreconcilable problem. God's wisdom is revealed in the mystery of the church. The miracle of salvation, but also in the mystery of the church. Now remember that Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 tells us that God's purpose is that the church show and tell to heavenly realms God's manifold wisdom. And God's wisdom is observed with the solution to another irreconcilable problem, and this irreconcilable problem is the Jew-Gentile problem. God solved the love-justice problem through Jesus. But what about this Jew-Gentile problem? So what do you mean the Jew-Gentile problem? Well, the Jews and the Gentiles were two hopelessly irreconcilable people. Both of them caught deep in the sin of pride. Israel, with all of her pride to be the treasured possession, chosen by God, we are his special people. We've got Moses, we've got the law. And the Gentiles, the Greeks, with all of their smug arrogance, who needs Moses, who needs the law when we've got Socrates and Plato and Aristotle? We've got philosophy. Oh yeah, well, God chose us. Oh yeah, well, we don't need you. Deep, deep divisions. When the angels looked over the precipice of heaven, they saw mankind divided into Jew and Gentile. And they hated each other. I mean, really hated each other. Especially the Jews. Remember in the Old Testament, Jonah the Jew? who didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites? Why? Because they didn't have good beaches? 
No, he didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites because they weren't Jews. They were Gentiles. Remember in the New Testament, Peter the Apostle, who didn't want to go to the house of Cornelius to share the gospel with him? Why? Because he wasn't a Jew. You remember the story how God had to come to Peter in a dream to tell him that God loves Gentiles too? Peter's sitting there with all of his Jewish pride and arrogance and smugness and saying, never in my life have I ever eaten anything unclean or touched anything unclean. I'm a Jew. I'm not going to a Gentile's house. And God had to say, look, look, he's not unclean. Go share the gospel with him. I mean, that was the attitude that existed. This deep division. You're excluded. All right, so how do you feel when those folks tell you you're excluded? You feel warm towards them? This is a problem. And here's the problem. From the book of Genesis all through the entire Bible, we're told over and over and over again that God loves all people and God wants all people to be his people. But how are we going to do that with all of this hostility? And I'm, I'm pretty confident that when the angels considered this Jew-Gentile problem, they were scratching their heads and going, man, how's God going to work this one out? That was pretty impressive, that love-justice thing. But this one, this one may be even beyond God. How do we solve this? Well, once again, guess what? Same answer, Jesus and the cross. Ephesians chapter 2 Starting in verse 11, let's read what it says. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ... You have been, you who are far away, Gentiles, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, Gentiles, and peace to you who are near, Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Both the Jews and the Gentiles stand before God guilty, equally guilty. Neither one have any reason or any room for pride. Both the Jews and the Gentiles stand on very level ground at the cross. And the blood of Jesus cleanses Gentile sin and Jew sin. And then what God does in his manifold wisdom 
is he takes the two and he makes them one through the cross. He doesn't establish a Jew church and a Gentile church. Through the cross, he brings them together and creates unity, one man. Wisdom and glory. The cross solves the love-justice problem and the Jew-Gentile problem. And the church shows and tells God's wisdom and God's glory. Now, for three chapters, what Paul does is he tells us about the formation of the church, the miracle of salvation, the mystery of the church, which was something that was unheard of in ages past, chapter 3 tells us. But now God has, in this administration, taken the two and made them one. He has formed the church. And, and what Paul says is this formation of the church is the manifold wisdom of God, which he uses to show off. It reflects on God. But it's also true, folks, that we as the church, and the way we conduct ourselves and the way we behave, shows and tells on God. And that's why after three chapters of telling us about how God formed the church and what a wonderful thing it is, what a glorious thing it is, what a wise thing it is, Paul turns the page in chapter 4 and he says, and now you walk worthy, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And that word worthy there means something that is appealing something that is appropriate, something that is attractive. This being the, the case, this being true of how God has formed the church, now church, live like this. And how is it that we, as the church of Jesus Christ, can show and tell the world around us the glory and the wisdom of God? I think... Paul tells us in the rest of the book. Here's how we can walk worthy of our glorious calling. In, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, we have the opportunity to walk in unity in a world of division. It's interesting that the very first thing that Paul says after telling us that God has taken the two and made them one, the very first thing he says is walk in unity in a world of division. How many of you can testify to the fact that this is one complicated, messed up world of conflict and division. I've often been surprised as a, as a pastor for, for a long time. People bring their, their junk into the church. They bring conflict into the church. And I'm, I, I, for many times as a pastor, I, I, I used to think, dude, don't you have enough issues at work? enough conflict at work, and I know what you're dealing with at home. Don't you have enough conflict at home? Why do you want to have conflict in yet one more place? I have no reason to think that Bethel is a church of strife, but it, it, it is true that the way we're going to win the world, 
according to Jesus, is by what? Being one. Demonstrating unity. The world around us doesn't want to join another group and say, well, I, one more place. We can walk in unity in a world of vision. Walk in holiness in a world of depravity. What's it like out there? What, what, do, you, what do you guys see? See a lot of holiness or a lot of depravity in the world out there? And we can be a light that shines with purity in the midst of depravity. We can walk in love in a world of selfishness, walk in light in a world of darkness. We can be controlled by the Spirit in a world dominated by the flesh. What do you think? Folks walking around out there dominated by their flesh? We should be the contrast to that. We can walk and wear the armor of God to overcome our evil adversary. This is our opportunity to be the church and to reflect well on him. See, the church is God's show-and-tell masterpiece. And I would just love this morning if you could grasp that concept and have just a sense, a new perspective of who we are as the church. God's showing off with us. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, the church is the medium through which God's wisdom becomes manifest. The church is a kind of prism placed in the path of the light to break up the whiteness into the colors of the spectrum. What a conception of the Christian church. The question that comes to us is this. Are we manifesting this wisdom of God? Is it being seen in us? Are we reflectors of, in our little way of this bright shining of the eternal wisdom? Are you somewhere in the spectrum? Is the light being reflected through you? God forgive us if we're failing. Is the light shining through you? So I just want to encourage you, Bethel, that you have the opportunity to show and tell. I want to encourage you, Bethel, and challenge you, Bethel, that you have the opportunity to show and tell. The heavens are watching. What are we showing and what are we telling? Father, I pray that you would uh, take your word and allow it to penetrate hearts in the way that uh, only you know where it needs to land. <coughs> so, Father, I pray that the, the Spirit would penetrate, and if there are those who simply need to be encouraged to say, wow, I've never really considered that we as the church really have this great opportunity to reflect on the one who has created us. If there are those who need to be challenged to walk in unity or love or light or holiness or allow the spirit to dominate them rather than their flesh so that they reflect well on you. Father, I pray that your spirit would do the work that you have sent him to do. And I pray for all of this, that Bethel Bible Church would be a shining light. It would be the prism that shows and tells well here in East Texas and all over the world. In our Savior's name, amen.
thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.